Aloha my kako. We've got a beautiful weekend ahead. Oh, it's great to be here with you. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa, and we're linking hands across the islands today. Cannot wait to tell you about the new art center coming to Lihue. Art is a common thread here, and we're starting off in Chinatown, the Honolulu Arts District. It's that odd part of town that just seems to have a destiny all its own. City resources are pouring into that 16-block area, but just yesterday I saw an email from a worker at Wits End pleading with city administration to protect the elderly she works with at a nonprofit housing project there. She wrote, Today I left my office and I was confronted by an extreme increase in homeless and mentally ill human beings who are very scary, scream and block storefronts as they curse at the elderly. Anton Krucki is Honolulu's Director of Community Services. He recently moved there from housing and homelessness. Krucki's been involved in strategizing the administration's response to conditions in Chinatown. So we sat down with Mr. Krucki, who explains a strategy that will take time to play out. But you know, in terms of, of actual numbers, they started the weed and seed on July 12th. And so that between that and the end of the year, they had uh, 78 misdemeanors. They had 26 DMVs and 129 felony arrests. More than half of those arrests turned out to be people that uh, were homeless. What's this telling us, Anton? Well, I mean, I, is that I, a lot of arrests? And what do arrests tell us? Because those very people end up back on the street within hours, if not days. Not so much. That that's really the difference in this program is is that we're we're working with the judiciary on geographical uh, uh, restrictions and we are prosecuting these these people. So whereas that story was the storyline last year, not last year, the year before, and a lot of that had to do with with the you know the prisons that closed up and 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 everything else. But in this case, no, these people are being processed. So. A vivid example, we're all part of an email chain that was started by Orange Schleeman of um, Chinatown Watch, and it includes you, um, Mike Formby, the managing director, Scott Morishige from State Homeless Services, IHS, HPD, <laughs> you know, and so we've, we've been really updated on the uh, activities of a certain Herman there in front of Yang's uh, kitchen, and just what it's like for people in the neighborhood to consistently see him you know, urinating, masturbating, defecating on the sidewalk. It's been yeah, going on and, for weeks and it continues today. Right. We need to get him off the street for his own health as well. Anton, we really got to look at this because Scott responded and he said, you know, he talked to his IHS service providers and they said that his social worker is in contact with him and they're working on a treatment program right now. Now, yep. nobody is for being able to just rip people off the street involuntarily. So we're really in a bind here, apparently. Well, you, know, you, you have to work each one, one at a time. I mean, it, it is difficult. A lot of these people have also burned bridges in places where we can't take them certain places anymore. But a lot of it's that is the medical coverage and, and the psychiatric help. Now, we have more stabilization beds that we can take people to that CORE can respond to. I met with the state uh, last week to talk about how we get CORE and HONU, which is the Transitional Triage Center shelter, and, and the state's mental health division kind of all coordinated together. I'm really trying to show a, a coordinated city-state process rather than it be the city. 
because what we're really after is a successful process, right? Both for the citizens and for these individuals. What, what's the plan for the area? Is Evie Lay going to be a real way to take the pressure off of Chinatown in terms of services? Well, I think it will. I think we need to do a master plan for Eva Lay in the, in, the, in the longer term. But that being said, you've been very polite not to ask me directly, but River of Life, there's a strong desire by the people that live in, in Chinatown to have them move that feeding operation. And I'll tell you today, I just got off the phone with Rand, and they're committed to removing that. You're talking are, about Rand a, Watermill, who's the chair of the board there at the River of Life. Yes, yes, Rand Watermill. And, and they're committed to moving their feeding operation. So there's a couple of things they want to operationalize to get ready to finalize that contract, but we're not negotiating the contract anymore. We're just kind of doing that piece, and that will that will happen. You know, there's also another component across the street, a mental health uh, rehabilitation location that's part of an affordable housing called Safe Haven, and yes. we have a plan in place for that. What's the idea for Safe Haven, for that oh, rather we, large we, complex there? Well, there's 30 people in Safe Haven, but there's another 40 that are, are there as well. Some are graduates from the Safe Haven. So we're going to, you know, we're going to continue to support that program. We're just going to do it in another location. We have a plan and, and we're going to cascade that plan. And then we're, we're going to sort of clean up that building some and, and we'll put a different type of clientele in it. It'll still have a homeless nexus, but it'll be family oriented. And I also want to clean up those bathrooms that are there. For more liveliness on the streets, is there any way that some of those empty storefronts could be populated with businesses trying to make it? Some of these entrepreneurs would love to be part of pulling Chinatown out of where it is right now. Yeah, I think that was the wisdom of the mayor putting Alex in charge of all of those, all the different departments in the city working on Chinatown rather than me, because I've been focusing on these pieces. But are you feeling like things are coming together? I do feel they're coming together. I think there's pieces to still do. I think I also think that there are things that I'd like to build. So I've got to look at some more permanent yeah. things so that I can leave behind us a way to do these things. But the key for us in, in the areas I work in are really, can we expand that decision making on the street from just, you know, you need to move, right, to we have weed and seed, we can offer them whole new we have core now we launched and launching a new department in a city was a lot of effort, if you can imagine. Yes. The core idea is to provide social services along with law enforcement response to homeless. With People. law enforcement or, or diverted law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. In my vision, I could see that division where it already has the ambulances, it has ocean safety, and then it's going to have core. And I think by having the city run this program with city employees makes a big difference. And, and we can move this thing along in the directions that can have some some real substantial results for, for the individuals that we're trying to treat and for the communities we're trying to work in. Hmm. Appreciate that picture from Anton Krucke, Honolulu's Director of Community Services. City officials are planning a Chinatown presentation with the community in February. It's coming up. River of Life Mission, meanwhile, is on the Chinatown Neighborhood Board agenda next week, Thursday. That meeting's online. We'll post links on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is the Tianjin Chinese Traditional Orchestra playing at a Chinese chamber event here back in 2017. We're going to take an aficionado's tour of Chinatown next.
Tianjin Chinese Traditional Orchestra. Glenn Mason is the principal at Mason Architects in Honolulu. They've got offices on Merchant Street. They specialize in historic preservation. Mason is an AIA fellow. He's worked on many of Hawaii's most important historic sites. He's agreed to take us on a tour of Chinatown to open our eyes to some of its charms. We moved into Chinatown in 1982. When we moved there, it was, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure it was at its nadir, but it was pretty low down. About a year after we moved into Chinatown, the last restaurant that was open in all of downtown Honolulu closed. And for one year, there was not a single restaurant open in Chinatown or downtown at night. It's hard to believe, it's hard to believe. This was probably 83, maybe 84. There were no restaurants open at night, none. Chinatown developed um, primarily because of the harbor. It was very harbor oriented at the, t at the time it was developed. So we are right, when you get to where Murphy's is, that's in Chinatown. Uh-huh. So now we're, we just walked into Chinatown. And you can see, actually, <laughs> one of the things that's really cool, Murphy's has this, they've got all of these Chinese granite pavers. These are original pavers. And you mean these square blocks? These square here. blocks. They're, they're granite, they're probably about four inches thick, set as pavement. These came over as ballast in ships from China. Because in the very beginning, we were shipping out lots of things like sandalwood. We basically raped our forests in order to get sandalwood to ship to the east. And when the ships came back, they were empty. And one of the things that they did was they used stones as ballast when they came back. And so this is all left over from probably pre-1900 paving. This is the, called the Foster Block, actually. Um, ah, the Foster Block with right. the tools there, the Nipujiji right. building. Exactly. That entire brick building and the small building behind it actually did survive the fire. That, this is as far down as the fire got. There was a terrible fire in 1886 and then another one in 1900. As a result, many of the buildings that were built after 1900 were built with brick or stone, most of the buildings that we're looking at in Chinatown date from that time period. Now, they built some wood buildings at the same time because they were cheap, they were easy to put up, but almost all, maybe all of those buildings are gone now. So, so the remarkable thing about Chinatown is its scale. I mean, almost every building is two stories. There's a few three-story buildings and an occasional building that's four stories, except for the newer developments that the city has made with, by inserting housing into Chinatown, which actually is a good trade-off because it actually brought life back into Chinatown. I mean, before there was a substantial amount of housing in Chinatown, it was dead at night. I mean, there just wasn't very much, well, it's it wasn't exactly, yeah, except... Uh, again, when we moved into Chinatown, there were probably six uh, porno movie theaters or porno arcades in Chinatown. And it was, you know, a place that people went for bars to drink and find drugs 
and go to porno movie theaters. And so that was it. And you, you walk around now and you just you don't see any of that, which is great. You know, Aww. and a lot of that came from not only individual developers coming in and fixing up buildings, but I do attribute some of it to the city bringing people into Chinatown, people who live in Chinatown. That was what they were trying to do, right? That, they well, got exactly, HUD right? money to, to yeah. put people right there in the Gateway Plaza. Well, every one of the city's projects where they've developed these high-rise housing areas and, or even mid-range housing those were parking lots. Harbor Court was what parking lot. Yeah. It actually, believe it or not, Harbor Court, that site, when they did the archaeological investigations, they found that that site was the site of Kamehameha's, the first house site when he was on Oahu. The history of the use of this, this harbor goes back at least a couple hundred years that we know of. So... When they built these buildings, what are they in the style of? What... <laughs> well, I think that you have to look at eras. Let's assume that you look at things from the time of the fire on. For the next 25, 30 years, people were building buildings that looked like buildings elsewhere in the United States. Starting in the mid-20s, there was a very strong drive to try to come up with a, an architecture a design style that was individual to Hawaii, called Hawaiian regionalism. And there are buildings in Chinatown, like Wo Fats, yeah. which definitely try to say we're what? unique to Hawaii, we're unique to this place. The thing is that, you know, we call it Chinatown, and it, of course, that's, it, it had a very high proportion of Chinese um, living in it and working in it. But the peak of Chinese residents in Chinatown was probably 56% right after the fire. And then, of course, it decreased gradually from, from that point on. And today, when you walk around Chinatown, it's filled with Vietnamese and Filipinos. And, I mean, the, the food itself is from all over. It's, it's all over the Pacific. And so, you know, that's, that's just the nature of Chinatown. It's always been a center for non-native community, I think, if you want to call it that. But one of the things that I think is really important to talk about, and this is partially my interpretation, what makes Chinatown special is scale. Of course, the history. But how does the history get expressed? We tend to think of historic districts like this as individual buildings. And that's not really what it's about. It's about the buildings, but it's also about the, the street pattern, the view planes, and everything else. It's a, it's, it's a composite of everything. We're walking along here under a canopy. There are blocks in Chinatown. You can walk around the entire block when it's pouring rain and not get wet. But this is a characteristic of Chinatown. Oh, you're right. I mean, it makes it so nice to walk up this street. We're right. not in the sun. We're not in the sun. And when it's raining, we're protected. And you look around, that's a characteristic of Chinatown, right? But again, it's everything. It's lava rock curbstones. And um, I can see the mountains looking up New Wano Avenue. That's important. So. Look, I can see the ocean. 
I see the harbor. Yeah, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, so on this one street, I see the harbor, I see the ocean, and I see the mountains. Right, right. And, and that's so easily lost design of canopies. I mean, you see, see the break in the, in the decorative element at the edge there. Well, that, these canopies were all designed at a time when everything was a little shorter. And so now they have great big delivery trucks that come by and they bang into these canopies. Well, the canopies sometimes extend out to and sometimes even slightly beyond the curb. But do you want to whack them all back? By and large, what's happened is the building owners in Chinatown have really fixed up their properties. I mean, you go in some of the, all this, you know, brick, brick fire tavern and all these places Encore, that we're looking fat. at here. Yeah, they're, they're pretty nice buildings. I mean, the owners have done a really nice job fixing up these buildings on the inside. And so I'm, I'm actually very optimistic. with this bizarre Chinatown architecture where you go inside the building, you walk up two floors toward the back, and then you come out to a veranda over a garden. Oh, yeah. You know, what, what kind of architecture is this? Look, these, the, if the lot is big enough, remember, all of these buildings were designed to be naturally ventilated. They couldn't be big blocks of buildings. And so they're all relatively thin. And if you have a deep lot, you're not going to build the building the full depth of the lot because then you have no air. You have no air. When you look at a building like the Mendonca Block that has a nice courtyard, that courtyard was built partially because after more than about 50 feet deep, you have no ventilation. Um, and so all the buildings that were built in downtown Honolulu, elsewhere, they all tried to stay relatively thin, and that's the only way that human comfort was even remotely possible before we air-conditioned the living daylights out of everything. But again, there was not a lot of creative architecture here. People were building buildings that were kind of, I would just say, normal buildings. But there's a certain amount of, um, you know, the modularity of brick uh, the modularity what do you of stone. Mean by that modularity? Well, what do you... one of the nice things about brick is that the shape and the size of a brick is a module that's very easy to to understand and grasp, and um, or even a stone that's a little bit larger. That modularity creates a certain texture that is um, more human scale than you know a building that's just completely plastered flat. And I think that modularity that is expressed in brick and stone and some other materials is actually one of the things that appeals to people. It gives a building a certain texture. The scale is not only the height of the buildings, it's the scale and modularity of the materials they're made out of. Um, and even the, the sidewalks, when you look at, uh, you know, this, this is actually the only, we're standing outside of the... Um, the old Club Hubba Hubba building, but um, <laughs> the, it's the only place in Chinatown where there's an actually remnant slate sidewalk. Wow. And, and that blends into, again, the original uh, China, uh, Chinese granite pavers. 
But you know, you're pointing out to me also that there are so many different textures that I'm seeing here. Oh, you yeah. know, and they're worn. They're not brand spanking new. You know what I mean? No. Well, I mean, and one of the things about Chinatown is even the the signage in Chinatown is just a much more exuberant. And part of that is that you just have all these different storefronts, one after another, right? But part of it is that's the nature of Chinatown. I mean, I'm hoping that eventually more of the signs will be saved because I think they tell the history of the place, again, as much as the buildings do. Yeah. But there's all these little things, idiosyncratic things that they're interesting, but they, they lend depth to our existence, frankly. And that depth, that knowledge about our past is really important. And I don't care whether you're talking about Hawaiian history or, you know, the history of Japanese in Hawaii or the history of Chinese in Hawaii. All of that layers together to create the place that we live in. And if we don't, if we're not sensitive to this stuff, then, I mean, why are we here? We aren't New York City. We aren't even San Francisco, you know? We are our own place. And I think knowing the history of this place and why, and you know, what's special about it is really important to understanding who we are, you know? You know, maybe it's a bias. But anyway, it's just kind of interesting. What would you call the center of downtown? I think Bishop Street is the, is the center of downtown, but I mean, so would you say Bishop and King? Oh, if you had to pick a spot, yeah, I'd probably pick that. You'd have to pick that intersection because it's the intersection of the two major streets in Honolulu, and also, I mean, some major public open spaces focus on that space. That's true, but I mean, clearly, the, the civic center is the, the center of government in Honolulu, and it always has been. I mean, that area between Mission Houses and really Richard Street is where our government has been focused. And I mean, for, you had Kauai Church, the National Historic Landmark, the first missionaries were, were there, and it goes all the way up through statehood, and today being an important government center. And so you have Washington Place that Lilio Kalani lived in. You have St. Andrew Cathedral, which was started in 1864. When you start to look at the age of the buildings and what they represent, that civic center is huge in our, in our history. I mean, we, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the building of the state capitol. That's 50 years old. That's a threshold for typically for determining a historic building. And that, thing's, that has been there for 50 years. So you look at that and think about all of the other buildings in the, the uh, Civic Center. It's actually a wonderful environment to walk around in and to talk about because the architecture that is in our Civic Center is really very interesting. Um, really? Is, oh, it, yeah. is it something to be proud of? Oh, I think it's, yeah. Well, I don't care what you're, you're interested in, um, whether it's architecture or social history or political history, our Civic Center actually has it all. 
Glenn Mason of Mason Architects in Honolulu has led us gallantly through Chinatown and to Iolani Palace. You can picture the grounds, stately staircase there in front. We're about to go back to a time when the field in front of the palace was filled with people clamoring for rights that a new constitution had taken away. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Phil Cousineau, author of The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be providing an entirely new and positive interpretation to this often misunderstood Greek myth. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for the Aloha Friday Conversation comes from Na Mea Hawaii and Native Books Hawaii, dedicated to sharing knowledge of and about Hawaii, its people, culture, and language. Learn more at naumeahawaii.com. This is the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Noe Tanigawa. So many key events in Hawaii's history happened in January. For a sequence of events and a sense of the times, we're turning to Zita Kup Choi. She is Iolani Palace historian. Kup Choi says, Honolulu, take yourself back. Honolulu in the 1890s was a bustling international seaport. It was very much international. There were a lot of businesses. The major industry was sugar. There was also a lot of people involved in providing services to the shipping industry. A large variety of nations had ships in the Pacific region. There were people from Europe, from Asia, from the United States. And an overwhelming percentage were Hawaiian and part Hawaiian. Hawaii, I also need to make sure to mention, was very literate, almost 100% literacy at the time Kalakaua became king. Um, Zita, what effect did such a large literate population have on on the way the the nation ran? Okay, so Kamehameha III made the nation a nation of education. Every adult, and even the kids for that matter, were literate, they were knowledgeable about how government worked and what they needed to do to affect government change. There was also a huge percentage of people that were who were registered to vote, who were involved in voting and lobbying. We think there's a lot of PACs now by reading some of the newspapers from the 19th century. There might have been more of them then. And that 1887 constitution created a situation where A lot of people who had been able to participate in the 1886 elections were no longer able to vote. 
you're talking about the so-called bayonet constitution. Bayonet constitution, yeah. And there was objection to that. There was major objections to it because it meant many Native Hawaiians could no longer vote. They didn't have the property or income that was required. There were complaints within the community that the literacy test disenfranchised people of Asian and Southern European ancestry who had just as much interest in participating in government as everybody else. So there was a lot of interest in being involved in politics. People followed closely. And so what, oh, yeah. how did people feel with the advent of the one and only queen for this name? I think a lot of them were devastated by Kalaakala's death, primarily because at the time, the only communication we had with the outside world was by steamer. Kalaakala was expected home at the end of January from a trip he'd made to California. And Lili Okalani, regent at the time, had planned a ball to be held on the evening of his arrival from California. And when Lighthouse Charlie spotted his steamer off the coast of Diamond Head with the flags at half mast and draped in black, that's when the community realized he had died. No. So it was, you know, you're, you're expecting your beloved monarch home and he's coming home in a casket. That just was devastating for everybody. Um, in particular for his widow. Queen Kapilani. Yeah. And Princess Lady Okalani was told the day her, her brother's body was being brought to the palace to lie in state, you need to take the oath of the office as queen now. And she says in her autobiography, she, she wanted to delay it. She wanted to mourn her brother for a few days before she took the oath of office because she knew that oath would have required her to promise to support the 1887 constitution, which thousands of her community members wanted her to get rid of. And she says, Petitions like that, you can't ignore as an elite. Petitions like that are the voice of the people. And you've got to listen to them. She wasn't able to make changes right away. She took the oath of office. And one of the first challenges she faced is that her brother's cabinet didn't want to resign. She appealed to the Supreme Court. And the court basically told them the monarch who appointed you is no longer in office anymore, so you've got to resign. So they resigned and she appointed men she felt she could work with. Ooh. She's newly in office and she's bucking the 1887 constitution. The court went into mourning. In August, she lost her husband. And that legislative assembly in 1892 began, I think it was in February of 1892. And according to the 1887 constitution, they had the right to fire cabinets. They fired four of Lady Okalani's cabinets before the legislative session ended in January of 1893. So I think she wasn't getting a lot of support for the changes she wanted in the legislature, which is really strange because 1887 Constitution, Robert Wilcox tried to get rid of it in 1889. His attempt to get rid of the 1887 Constitution failed. But people in his camp that would have supported getting rid of the 1887 Constitution were the overwhelming majority of the winners in the election in 1890. Many of the legislators were Hawaiian and they would have respected her because of her elite status and because of all that she had done for her community. 
but there was also a group in the legislative assembly and, and, and in the community that I don't think appreciated or respected or wanted a female ruler of any kind. So she was fighting an uphill battle and in, in trying to run her country. There yeah, was support, it, though, underground. And is that what finally erupted in 93? OK, the last two years, we've had a lot of um, executive orders. Yeah, and yes. all they need to do to make them law is to sign it. Any executive order created after the 1887 Constitution had to be countersigned by cabinet members. So Lady Okalani meet with her cabinet after the 1892 legislative session ends. Here is a new constitution that has been requested by the huge portion of the community. I want to introduce it. I want to make it law. They had to countersign it, and they refused to. So this is what led a group of local residents of American and European ancestry to depose her and declare that they were the government of Hawaii. When was this? January of 1893. Medio Kalani told the people that had gathered on the palace grounds expecting this new constitution to become law. I wasn't able to do it today. Please go home peacefully because I think she was convinced that she was going to be able to talk her cabinet members into signing it. She was unable to get ratification from her own cabinet. Yeah. They may have been afraid of civil unrest if they supported her, but at the same time, I think they also knew that constitution would have been loved and supported by a huge majority in the community. Members of that majority had gathered expecting to receive this constitution, you're saying? They, they certainly had, yeah. They were dispersed by the queen. And what happened? They went home peacefully, and then two days later, the Committee of 13 declared the monarchy was ended and that they were the government of Hawaii, the provisional government of Hawaii. When she was presented with this fact, fate accompli in a sense, Medio Kalani yielded to the superior authority of the United States because what the American minister had done against diplomatic protocol, he got fired for his actions as a matter of fact. He had asked the um, commander of the USS Boston to land Marines to protect American lives and property. And the only individual in a nation that can ask foreign naval officers to come ashore for help is the head of state. And that really should have only have been Lydia Kalani. President Cleveland sent out a special commissioner to investigate, and Commissioner Blatt's report concluded Lydia Kalani is legal head of state in the Hawaiian Islands still. She and her government are the only ones the United States should be dealing with on a diplomatic level. The provisional government realized there's no way they were ever going to get annexed to the United States until Cleveland, who had just taken the oath of office as president, left office. So they created the Republic of Hawaii. Shortly after the Republic of Hawaii was created in July of 1894, Lidio Kalani supporters had begun making plans to restore her to power. They were going to use some um, military measures, and they knew if they told her, she would tell them, stand down. We're still dealing with this in the courts, in diplomatic circles. The testimony they gave during her trial was that they had collected guns to protect her and her home. They were going to protect her in case of insurrection, and the Republic of Hawaii government used the presence of those 
individuals and those guns as a pretext for arresting Lidi Okalani in January of 1895. She was imprisoned after that, after an attempted coup. She was accused of being a traitor, a co-conspirator. The primary charge that she was tried on and convicted of was knowing about the plots and not reporting it to the government. There's no evidence that anybody that made plans to attempt to restore her to power ever told her about it. What, tell me then, what is the status of that annexation document? Hawaii was annexed by the United States by a joint resolution of Congress. Is that so, really possible, legally? No. Under international law, no. President Cleveland had pulled the Treaty of Annexation from the Senate when it was introduced later. Lidia Kalani and her supporters had gotten enough support to not get the votes needed for that Treaty of Annexation to pass in the Senate. So some senators and some people in Washington, D.C. felt the workaround would be to annex us by a joint resolution of Congress. And because the Republic of Hawaii was so desperate for Hawaii to become part of the United States, they accepted it as a done deal. Queen Liliuokalani, the queen, was so committed to established government procedures. She visited President Cleveland to plead her case. She did. She worked through all the channels and she returned to Washington, D.C. to lobby for restitution for the crown lands that had been ceded to the United States by that treaty. Zita, people look to her now as an example of enlightened leadership. For me, she was doing what was pono, what was proper, what was right, what was ethical. She was gracious, always in the face of adversity. Sometimes I feel her presence in the imprisonment chamber. When I'm doing the tour in that room, I always would prefer to remember her not as our last queen, but as a prolific composer and as the creator of a trust that is still taking care of the children of Hawaii today, tens of thousands of them. So she was moving beyond who she was and what had happened to her and looking to what she can do for the community at large. Zita Kupchoi is Iolani Palace historian. Mahalo to the great team and volunteers at Iolani Palace. You are so appreciated. Kupchoi leads an intimate white glove tour of special objects in the throne room, state dining room, the library, and palace attic. That happens on Thursdays. We'll include a link with this story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. And we close with this segment from George Helm. That's a song that has an interesting origin. It was written in a prison. That prison was the Iolani Palace, and it was written by the late Queen Liliuokalani. She wrote this song for a place in Waikiki that is now the location of the Holiday Inn Hotel. At one time, oh, there used to be a beautiful garden, as it's expressed in this one song that was written behind the bars.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Stephen Breyer is retiring and President Biden has his first chance to choose someone for the Supreme Court. I'm David Green. That story, plus Ukraine and Russia, and also how to help people in poverty as our country emerges from a pandemic. Join Megan McArdle, Mo Alethi, Michael Tubbs, and me for Left, Right, and Center. Beginning this evening at 7, following All Songs Considered. to round out Aloha Friday today, let's head over to Town on Kauai. Mark Gabe is global CEO of LaSalle Investment Management. They do real estate and private equity. Based in Hong Kong, since the pandemic, Gabe has been spending more time here in the U.S., and his wife and son are on Kauai now at the family home just outside Kilauea. One positive sign regarding the much-anticipated art center is the savvy partners that Gabe has attracted for the project. Longtime artist and arts organizer Carol Yotsuda, artist and gallerist Bruna Studa, and ceramic artist, arts agitator David Kuraoka, all are based on Kauai. First of all, we're all friends. And the common interest between all of us is the art world. And probably more importantly, is probably the creative process. And as you know, each of them are very accomplished in, in their own way. And the genesis of the idea really came when um, Bruno and I and David were, were sort of talking about why the island didn't have kind of a community-based art center. She had referred me to the study that the county did a few years back, a feasibility study about an art facility. That's what put the idea in my head. You know, it's just like anything in life. Sometimes, you know, things just line up. And I'd started with those discussions. It was just a kind of an idea. And then the building came to the market. And I thought, you know, this building is a great piece of history. And it's a, bit, it's a great place marker. I should just try to buy it. And we'll, we'll figure it out later. What's 2017? 2016. And, and the old Crest building, people still know it as. The old Crest building. And then you describe know, it. Would you, what appealed to you about it? Its presence appealed to me. And some of its architectural characteristics uh, are very unique uh, to the island, being that it was the first uh, five and dime department store. And we work with the Kauai Historical Society to say, what are really the key elements that people uh, remember? And it, it came down to really, if you know that building, the curved glass entrance with the two different doors. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a, a big part. Hugely uh, welcoming. Yeah, it was just, it's just a quintessential Art Deco uh, building, you know, and its location obviously ties in with the county's plan to, to revitalize downtown Lahui and, and Rice Street. And I can see the history and probably talking to David is where that came in a lot more because he did grow up there. He has all kinds of, of memories and stories about the coffee shop and the diner that was inside the old Crest building. So I think these things are important. Yeah, it's a building and a neighborhood. You're a developer. Do you have experience with how a facility like this affects the neighborhood around it? Before my current job, I was in the coffee business. Usually the coffee stores are, are, are sort of the first places that go in and start to turn around neighborhoods that, that might be a little, a little sleepy. 
you can see from that perspective, the value of having a physical gathering space. You look at Rice Street, there's been some good examples of, of that with the Kauai Brew Company and a couple other, the small long-term restaurants that have been there, but it still doesn't have enough of a, of a gathering space draw to it. What would be great? Can you dream? Because it's never one building, it's a neighborhood. Absolutely. Could I dream? Absolutely. There's a lot you can do that. And we, we've talked about it as a, as a community and county's done a good job with a lot of outreach, a lot of design charrettes, and there's been some work with the University of Hawaii. There's a lot of potential. I mean, everywhere from perhaps the repurposing of the county buildings, all the way down to the convention center, where you've got all that tremendous open space and athletic fields. Why wouldn't you redevelop that outdoor space to be kind of the premier outdoor park, maybe in the Hawaiian Islands? That kind of facility could accommodate skateboarders, rollerbladers, people walking, upgrade the ball fields and make them state of the art. Really put some money and develop an outdoor park that people would be drawn to. And you've got the parking because of convention center and, and a lot of the space around. So if I had to dream big, I would dream about reconstituting across the street from where the, the Crest Building is today as a true public amenity. Then you would think the activity would spur economic investment. And then sort of the gaps in the street on rice might start filling in. All developers know you need a, a catalyst and you need a demand driver and you've got some good things down there, but you need to draw more people. So that'd be my dream. What do you see going on inside the art center? Or wh and what's the name of it? We haven't really named it. We refer to it as D2. And the reason, <laughs> it's, D, the reason it's D2, we call it dairy and dime. Because prior to being a five and dime, if, if you looked at the history, um, it was a dairy farm. It's a big building. Right, it's 22,000 square feet on, on the inside. At the moment, I kind of see it as, as three different spaces. The front space where, the, where I talked about the, the curved glass and, and the doors, which will be beautiful, but definitely cost a pretty penny. That should be traditional commercial, preferably a food use. I'd love to bring the old diner back. It was a quintessential kind of 1940s, 1950s diner. You could definitely do a lot of different food uses in the front. And sort of the middle portion of the building at the moment, I see that as a kind of community-oriented pop-up space for events. And as you know, Kauai's got a tremendous calendar of all kinds of events. Carol has been really instrumental in educating me about all those events. The, the back space, which is more, more than half of the, of the space, will be dedicated to the creative process. That's where David Karoka comes in and will definitely start with the commercial grade ceramic studio in there. And perhaps Bruna next with a printmaking and, and some digital. It has to start with some creative activity in the back. Oh yeah, artists to the rescue. Mark Gabay is global CEO of LaSalle Investment Management. He's developing an art center in Lihue on Kauai. No relation to the L.A. real estate developer of the same name. Now here's Kauai hip-hop artist Sunda One. His 2020 release, Garden Island Riders. Yeah. 
No matter where I've been or where I stay, the Bay or LA, I never forgot the island I came. Kauai make me proud, stand strong, we forever untamed. Independent, top of the chain, I either could never be conquered, abused, but never broken. Understand the ancient sacred land, which beauty holds a thousand emotions, where Kamehameha's final resting place still remains mystery. Oh, that's about it for Aloha Friday this week. Mahalo for your company. If you enjoyed this show, you can share it or listen again on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Contact us. We love to hear from you. The conversation is a Kako thing, produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Lillian Zhang, and Russell Subiono. I'll be with you on the listening end Monday. Catherine Cruz will be in picking up the conversation. We've got a gorgeous weekend ahead for all of us anyway. <laughs> I'm Noe Danigawa. Ahuiho. Let's take care of each other. And happy Aloha Friday. Thank you.